You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Helen Caldicott. Dr. Caldicott is a pediatrician, and she'll be speaking to us from Sydney, Australia. She's also the founder of Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament and the founder and first president of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Thank you very much for joining us today. That's a pleasure. If I can paraphrase one of your books, we'll be discussing what can be done if you love this planet. If I can start out, Dr. Caldicott, what prompted you to become an activist after being so involved in pediatrics and especially with an interest in cystic fibrosis? Well, uh, several things. One, when I was about 14, I read a book called On the Beach by Neville Chute, an Australian author about a nuclear war that occurred by accident in the Northern Hemisphere, and everyone was annihilated in the world except people in Melbourne in Australia because we lived so far south, and gradually the fallout came down to us and everyone eventually died of acute radiation sickness, and although it was not possible to destroy life on Earth at that time, it soon became possible. So my soul was branded in a way when I was quite young. I then entered medical school aged 17. I took the Hippocratic Oath. I learned about the Muller experiments with Drosophila, irradiating Drosophila and the mutations that occurred because of the radiation that were passed on generation to generation. And at that time, 1956, Russia, America and China were testing weapons in the atmosphere and there was a very high fallout. And as a young medical student, I couldn't understand why the military in those countries were irradiating the population when we had scientific evidence that radiation-induced mutations in genetic disease and cancer. I tried to do some things at university when I was a student, but no one listened. I then came to live in America from 66 to 69. I had a part-time job in the cystic fibrosis clinic at Harvard then, but I watched an extraordinary situation in a democracy in action, civil rights movement, anti-Vietnam War movement, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy both killed, and Nixon was elected. And I think those years radicalized me and showed me how a democracy can be used to good advantage. And then when I came back to Australia in 69, I found out the French violating international law, were also testing weapons in the atmosphere, in the southern hemisphere. And we got a lot of fallout in Adelaide where I lived in the city. And so I wrote a letter to the paper, and that started the whole thing. So in truth, I was sort of prepared for this just by living my life in the nuclear age. And I became active politically, I guess, practicing preventive medicine, because all preventive medicine is enacted through the political process. I also remember the imagery of uh, On the Beach, without telling your age or my age. I also grew up with that movie and remember Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner. And after the movie, dancing to, or waltzing to Matilda for a long, long time. And I think that movie also impressed me much the way it did you. Being a physician, do you think a physician has an added responsibility? There are so few physicians who have a voice do you think that they have an added place or a special place in our community to be advocates for such issues? Absolutely. As I go around giving lectures and really educating people about the medical implications of nuclear war and nuclear power, 
most people have no idea what it means, but physicians do. For instance, I just gave grand rounds at my alma mater at Children's Hospital at Harvard, and many of the people, Mary Ellen Avery and, and the like, were there that I used to work with. There must have been about 70 or 80 physicians there, and they were absolutely flabbergasted at the data I produced about nuclear power. Physicians are the best audience I ever address. They understand it immediately. And because we understand it, we can't just stay in our consulting rooms and our labs pretending the rest of the world doesn't exist. For nuclear war, which could still occur tonight, Cold War is not over, the weapons are still there, ready to go, uh, would induce the, the final epidemic of the human race. And to ignore that is to the detriment of all of our patients. And so we have to deal with both the micro and the macro, for that is our responsibility. You know, I was impressed when I read your book, If You Love This Planet, how you compare the planet to a patient, that they have symptoms, they have disease, they have etiology. Did you have this in mind when you wrote the book? I think I just probably thought of it in one of my speeches and, you know, realized that the planet is a living organism and that the, the ozone layer is the integument, that the troposphere is the temperature control mechanism which is now being damaged by CO2 and global warming gases, that the circulatory system of the rivers, the lakes and the oceans, that the skeleton is the, is the earth itself, that the lungs are the trees which inspire CO2 and expire oxygen, and it all seemed to fit perfectly with what I learned as a physician, you know, all these systems interdigitate. And then I was intrigued by the cure. And at least what I took away from the book was, cure for our planet was voting. Could you respond to that? Well, it's not just voting, it's using the democracy. It, people think if they vote once every four years or so that they've done their dash. If you live in a democracy, you have a huge moral obligation to use it. And, and not to use it means that you shouldn't live in a democracy, I believe. Now, in Australia, where our election is coming up in two weeks' time, we have to vote. Voting is compulsory. Or we get fined $100, number one. Number two, as I just said, voting isn't enough. And I think what your wonderful President Jefferson once said holds true. An informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion, and it's up to us to inform ourselves, then get up and use this democracy. Otherwise, it's taken over by the corporations who do the polluting with carcinogenic substances, who make the weapons to destroy millions hundreds of thousands or indeed millions of people. I just think we have an extraordinary moral obligation as physicians to use the democracy and to be the leaders. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Helen Caldicott, and we're discussing the threats to our planet. I also know that you entered the political arena yourself, so you carried this a step further. I think you ran for office in South Wales. What prompted that? Yeah, it was it's New South Wales, actually. I moved to live in a glorious little place called Byron Bay in 1991, and our elections are only three weeks long. The election had just been announced, and a man from the local newspaper, Nick Shan, came and had dinner with me and said, you should run. I said, no way. And he talked me into it by saying, well, you know, you can't just leave Gorbachev standing. To, shouldn't you help him with the efforts he's made to end the Cold War and the like? And I suddenly, my conscience was pricked and I did run. It was a wild and exciting campaign of three weeks. 
And I missed by 600 votes out of 70,000. I would have been the first independent politician in the lower house, in the House of Representatives, ever to have been elected in Australia. However, I didn't make it. You know, you mentioned Gorbachev, and you said the Cold War isn't over. And I think back to Dwight Eisenhower in uh, 1953 had a speech, Adam for Peace. And it was in our country, and I'm sure the world, it was the first introduction of shifting nuclear energy from the military sector into the what has become known as the private sector, and there was an agency, Atomic Energy Agency, set up. Do you think back to that time as an opportunity, and has that opportunity been missed? Well, it wasn't an opportunity. It was a devastating move by Eisenhower. And the reason he did it was that the Manhattan Project scientists felt such guilt having annihilated 200,000 people in a flash of light, or two flashes of light, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They thought that they could harness atoms for peace, hence nuclear power. Towards the end of their lives, they knew that that was not a good idea because the poisons made in nuclear power plants are the same as those that released by explosion of nuclear weapons. And I worked with those men quite closely towards the end of their lives, and their guilt was still profound. And thus we embarked, with the help of Eisenhower, upon a very insidious, invidious technology which will over time induce epidemics of malignancy, congenital deformities and genetic disease forevermore from the radioactive waste from nuclear power. Could it be possible that that speech and the actions that took place brought us away from a brink of a disaster that might have happened at that time? You mean nuclear war? No. Yes. Because America was still building nuclear weapons. You know, over the Cold War, it built 77,000 nuclear weapons when the data shows that a 1,000 bombs dropping on 100 cities could induce nuclear winter and the end of life on Earth. So there were nearly 80 times more weapons necessary to produce the end of life on Earth than were needed. So, And Russia built not nearly as many, about a little over half that number. Consequently, I really don't understand how we are still here on this planet or, in fact, life exists. And the weapons, not so many, but thousands of them are still in place on hair trigger alert between Russia and America to destroy life on Earth. And of the 30,000 weapons in the world today, Russia and America own 97% of them. So the real rogue states continue to be Russia and America. Well, many people think, and I'd like to hear your opinion, that our real concern is exactly that term of nuclear devastation is from rogue states. Abdul Khan, for example, selling nuclear technology to Libya is probably something that has interfered or certainly set back any hopes to curtail nuclear proliferation. So when you use the word rogue state, you're referring to Russia and the United States, and I'm saying that I think that our concerns might be other states that have a rule of law not in place. That's displacement activity. You know, if you put rats in a cage, threaten them with a lethal situation, or they tend to run away and do something irrelevant, that's which threatens them. As I just said, of the 30,000 nuclear weapons in the world, Russia and America own 97%. The American uh, military policy is to fight and win a nuclear war against Russia. The Russians are therefore paranoid. George Bush, who's not the brightest spark in town, is the commander-in-chief. He gets three minutes to decide whether or not to press the button. Nuclear emergencies occur every day on the early warning systems in America and Russia. The only nations in the world that can destroy life on Earth are Russia and America. 
so to say, ooh, Libya might have a bomb, which he doesn't, or ooh, Iran may be developing 2.5 kilos of highly enriched uranium, which isn't enough for a bomb anyway, is to ignore the threat at hand. It's like you've got a patient with metastatic carcinoma in their terminal stage and you're worrying about, you know, a pimple on the nose of the patient. It's absolutely uh, medically contraindicated to practice medicine that way and we need to come to terms with reality, otherwise we're living in fantasy land and practicing psychic numbing. I'd like to thank Dr. Helen Caldicott for speaking with us. She's been our guest today and we've been discussing threats to our planet, real or imagined. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com.